All right. Hello, beautiful humans. It is January 3rd at 3.43 p.m. Eastern. And today, Ruth and I are recording lesson 3.4 on regenerative health. Three, two, one. Yes. Welcome, beautiful humans, just like Nick said, to 3.4. The lesson today is regenerative health and body literacy. And this is a juicy topic. Um, We thank you for being here. We thank you for taking responsibility for your health. Um, Taking care of you takes care of all of us. It's my new motto. I believe it to be true. Um, Today's today's lesson, we're going to cover the concepts about regenerative health and body literacy. And if you have questions about the lesson or um, you want to contribute a layer two conversation, something that spoke to you here and you want to expand on it, you can message us in Slack and we'll get that going for you. So let's dig in, Nikki Pop. Right. to regenerative health. So I'm going to, I'm going to hand it right over to you to start us off. Sounds good. I will have this, I'll lead off the subtopics and then you just kind of add in whenever you want or ask questions. Um, and we'll go from there. Sounds great. Okay. So I think the first thing to talk about, uh, is the, the comparison of healing and symptom suppression, because I think this is going to frame things, um, well for when we talk about regenerative health and what that means and how that compares to allopathic health or allopathic, allopathic symptom treatment. So let's start with some definitions. Healing um, is the restoration of health or return to an optimal dynamic equilibrium. And that's just like a fancy way of saying a return to an optimal state that is paired perfectly with the environment that it's adapted to. So health being the restoration uh, or healing rather being the restoration of health. Let's define symptom. So symptom is a physical or mental phenomena that indicate, and I I say that this, I'm saying these definitions, these are the working definitions I use. Please develop your own definitions. Uh, Everyone has their own subjective definitions, but we need to be able to anchor on some common threads. So my definition of symptom is a physical or mental phenomena that indicates a condition of disease. Usually symptoms are obvious to people, to individuals, especially individuals who are suffering the symptom. Um, and fundamentally a symptom is an indicator or a signal of a problem. So those are two important definitions to know. Um, something else to note too, is that a single disease or issue can have many different symptoms. And so if we zone in on just the symptom, it doesn't tell us actually anything about the the underlying cause, the root cause. And oftentimes where the symptoms are is a very different place than where the, where the root cause is of the, of the, um, base layer disease or issue that's causing the symptoms. So if we look at a symptom as an indicator or signal of a problem, when we suppress the indicator, which we often do for some short-term benefit, right? Like if the indicator of a knee problem is knee pain and you suppress the knee pain, well, you might've gotten some short-term relief reduction in pain, but now you've eliminated the only feedback mechanism you have to determine how best to heal. So it's kind of like a double-edged sword. And oftentimes when we suppress the indicator, we get short-term benefit for long-term harm. And the one exception to that would be something like unbearable pain. So if you have unbearable pain, it's probably okay to take something for the pain. But I often advise people, don't get rid of the the symptom completely because then you get rid of the only feedback element you have um, to help guide optimal healing. So healing, symptom suppression, very different things. I think commonly we conflate those two and we actually don't even talk about healing. All we talk about is getting rid of the bad things, um, which those bad things are usually symptoms, not actual diseases. And that's how we continue to allow diseases to propagate because all we're doing is playing whack-a-mole with symptoms, 
often creating more issues, more complexity. And so we need to contrast symptom suppression or symptom management versus healing. What are your thoughts on healing? Yeah, well, I, th- I think that there's the, the one thing that comes to mind is how little we allow ourselves to actually be and inhabit our bodies with all of the feelings, physical, mental, emotional, um, that, that we have. So like we have a, we have a very little understanding of the nuts and bolts of our human body and how it works symptom wise. I mean, um, system wise or organ wise, even like, we don't even really understand very well, like what our bodies do, even like at the elementary school level. And therefore I think that creates a level of fear and that combined with all of the different opportunities for us to, um, to suppress symptoms or, you know, that, that there's just never, we never give ourselves actually time to know our bodies and what actually might feel, um, discomfort is not anything that we are, that our culture allows for at all. You know, like we are designed, we are, which is intolerant of discomfort. We're intolerant of any level of discomfort at all. Um, and so, I think that that's the, that's one, that's the one thing I think about healing and symptom symptom suppression is that we, we just don't really, we don't really have like any knowledge, um, embodied knowledge about what's okay and what's not okay. And then the second thing I wanted to say is like, when we do have that information, even just like an, an elementary school level understanding of what our bodies actually do and how they're designed to work and what is you know, how we're in, we're just designed to reach a state of balance internally and feel good that, um, oh shoot, I lost it. It'll come back. Okay. It'll come back to you. Yeah. Yeah. I think an important thing there is like eliminating symptoms often goes against healing. Healing eliminates symptoms. So if we focus on healing, the symptoms will go away. Maybe not as quickly, Mm -hmm. but if we focus on the symptoms, then we almost will never achieve healing because the symptoms will distract us from the true root cause that's causing the symptoms in the first place. Um, And sort of the next one is this this definition of allopathic medicine, right? Allopathic symptom treatment and allopathy is the treatment of symptoms. That's really the definition of that one. And allopathic medicine is intervention based symptom treatment. And sometimes people call uh, allopathic medicine, like conventional medicine or Western medicine. Those are synonyms for that. And then they contrast that with non-allopathic medicine, which would be like alternative medicine or integrative medicine or naturopathic medicine. Like there's a a pretty good dichotomy of like symptom related um, medicine, which is the bulk of modern medicine. Um, And then integrative or restorative medicine, which is like viewed as non-mainstream and fringe and actually like allopathic medicine demonizes natural medicine, which is a really fucked up thing. It's really Mm -hmm. problematic because it's like, you're just confusing people and trying to prop yourself up at the expense of like other valid things like integrative medicine and and regenerative medicine are like very powerful tools and they get discounted heavily. Um, and because so many big companies control where insurance money gets spent, they bias towards allopathic medicine, which is especially in the United States. Um, and allo allopathic allos means uh, opposite and pathos means to suffer in Greek. So allopathic means in opposition of suffering. 
right? To relieve mm-hmm. symptoms. It's, that's kind of right. where that, the etymology of that word. And I think that we often conflate symptom treatment with treatment, mm-hmm. right? Like treating symptoms only versus treating the root cause of the disease, which will relieve the symptoms over time is a very important distinction to make. And just to give an example, you know, if the, if the symptom, if a symptom you have is constipation, well, the allopathic approach is take a laxative to relieve the constipation. The root causing inquiry approach is why am I constipated, right? Like how can I modify things and then see if the constipation dissipates? Cause the constipation is my signal that I'm doing something to create a problem in my bowels. Um, and so that's an example of how the allopathic pathic instant solution negates the need to figure out why you're constipated in the first place. And maybe you're on laxatives for the rest of your life because you never actually had the chance to figure it out. And so that's the yes. slippery slope. Um, I often heard the word palliative when I was in my physio rotations and it was usually applied to end of life care and like cancer wards where it's like the definition of palliative is relieving pain without addressing the root cause of the problem. And although that was applied there, like very vividly, it's like, that's mo as a physio, I was a palliative healthcare professional because all I was there to do was to treat symptoms. I wasn't actually even taught in physio school how to address root causes because it was all about someone comes in with this, you diagnose them, you treat them on an ongoing basis. Um, you don't inquire as to why the problem is happening in the first place. You don't focus on that. And so I think when we slide into, you know, unintentionally slide into a palliative model of what we call healthcare, but it's really sick care. Uh, we end up with everyone sick because we're never treating the problems. And so mm-hmm. that's sort of like this contrast this, to the concept of regenerative health. And, you know, I've been hearing a lot more of the word regenerative lately because of, I, I really like learning about regenerative agriculture and what that even means. So maybe a good place to go is like, what is, how do we define the term regenerative? And it really just means a process that restores, renews, or revitalizes something to their, um, to their own source of energy, right? So you're restoring the ability, you're helping an ability restore itself naturally instead of using some external thing to eliminate one variable. Um, Nikki Pop, before you go into that specific idea though, if you think about um, the historical nature of the way that medicine went, like symptoms back in the day were like life and death symptoms. So allopathic yeah, death was the shittiest symptom. <laughs> yeah. So it was like, it made sense that you had this, these symptom interventions because like it would be, you're knocking on death's door. And then you bring that to the future where it's like a, a legacy medicine system. So, um, so we just treat symptoms and there was never like any remodeling or renovating of, you know, like regeneration wasn't necessarily an issue because we were living in times where like the, you know, there were either like barefoot doctors and people who took care of each other until, and then the diseases were like life or death kind of diseases. And so the doctors treated the life and death symptoms. And so it reminded, it reminded me what I wanted to say earlier about like when we actually understand about the, at the elementary level, about the nuts and bolts of our body, we can triage symptoms, right? So like, if you understand that, like, what are the life and death symptoms, you know, then you can up until like those points where it's starting to get serious, whether it's like fluid imbalances or like those other things that are really going to, you're going to need the doctors to do what they're trained to do, which is to train to 
suppress life and death symptoms and treat like some emergency type of life and death situation, then there wasn't really, a, there was like, that's where you step into the regenerative model, right? So where, where that's needed now, because we're, we're at a crossroads where we're all messed up around what health is and how to treat symptoms and what are, what, what symptoms are even needed because we don't understand our bodies. Yeah, I think the times where we're most lost and most off track often stimulate getting back on track in a big way. And so I think we're going to see like a renaissance in health and people taking care of themselves after this weird period where we went way off the rails, everything broke, people are suffering, everyone's sick. That is the imposed demand needed for the specific adaptation of people taking more responsibility for their health, right? Like as a, as a human organism, global human organism, it's like, that's what we need to do in order to go through the discomfort of completely changing this broken system. Cause this is the best system we have mm-hmm. we've had until now. Right. Yeah. But there's nothing, you know, there's nothing wrong with saying this was created with good intentions and went off the rails because of perverse incentives. Now we got to reel it in and create something better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think regenerative, you know, cause the, the metaphor of looking at regenerative, like traditional farming, conservative or um, not conservative, but like, let's call it allopathic farming, right? Mm-hmm. So, okay. I grow a monocrop, which is very unnatural. A bunch of insects come to eat it because it's like a buffet because I've created something unnatural. So I put chemicals, right? I treat the, the problem that I'm observing with something external to kill the bugs, but I don't realize that I'm killing all the good things and I'm killing the food and I'm putting chemicals on food that humans are going to eat. Right. And mm-hmm. so it's this interventionist mindset where like, because of this problem, I must add this thing because that will solve the problem. But all it did was solve the symptoms. The insects eating that monocrop was a symptom of the root problem of growing an unnatural ecosystem on a wide scale. Right. Whereas the regenerative approach is like, okay, well, let's try different things to essentially reduce the unnaturalness of this area. And that's where regenerative agriculture comes in. It's like, how do we help nature regenerate herself into a sustainable loop Mm -hmm. instead of always being interventionistic until things collapse and then being left with basically dust instead of soil. So it's kind of the same thing with our bodies, right? Like we have this problem instead of thinking, well, how can we revert back to something more natural? We say, okay, let's put this thing in. Let's add this thing. Oh, and then we have two more problems. Okay. Let's add these two things. And then we have 10 more problems. And before you know it, the whole system is on the verge of breaking, just like the soil is going to dust. Mm-hmm. Whereas the regenerative case for health would be, okay, we have this problem. The body works well. So what are we doing to cause this problem? How can we remove that and revert back to a more natural mm-hmm. ecosystem? If you treat the body as its own ecosystem. And so, you know, the legacy system of sick care is intervention oriented. Uh, it often increases system complexity by adding an extra chemical to a system. You're increasing the complexity of that system, right? And you're often leading to more fragility. Um, because when you get so complex, things no longer can function properly. Uh, whereas regenerative systems thinking is subtraction oriented. It's like, well, let's remove what we could be doing to cause the problem instead of just adding something to deal with the superficial problem. You know, the goal with regenerative is to reduce system complexity, revert back to like the natural elegance and simplicity of nature. It's root cause oriented. You know, it's, it's really rewilding is another basically word yeah. for regenerative thinking when it comes to the body and it's integrative. It takes into account all the individual systems. And so I think that this whole notion of regenerative health being a systems-based approach that requires a holistic understanding of health, right? Of, of individual systems within a human 
how those systems interact and how humans interact with each other as a global system. You know, this whole notion that, well, why don't we just do regenerative? Why do we do allopathic? Because it's way more complicated. It requires us to take a much broader view. And in health, we've just siloed ourselves with like super narrow um, lanes of thinking. Mm -hmm. And if you're in your lane and you don't pay attention to all the others, then there's going to, there could be a freeway crash because you're not even paying attention to the people around you. Right. And that's not a good metaphor, but I think overall it's harder to do regenerative, to do a regenerative um, approach because it requires a much deeper and broader understanding of systems. And so we need to develop that in order to really take the sustainable approach. Right. And this whole notion of like, let's work with the body instead of on the body, right? Let's let the body do it. Let's enhance the body's natural technology instead of adding external things, thinking that we know better than the body. We don't, the body's got a lot more innate intelligence than anything we've come up with. Um, yeah. Your, your, your talk about like agriculture makes me think of, um, the, the times in my life where I've been exposed to, so, um, Matthew's family, my partner, my spouse, his family are in almond farming. They were in, they were in chicken farming and then um, they had a, a flock of 100,000 chickens, which was called small chicken farming, like small, small farm. chicken farming. Yeah. For, wow. And then, and then big agriculture, um, they couldn't sustain themselves anymore. So like they had to get rid of their chickens and, um, and anyway, they had, they have land and they grow almonds in California. And it's like the whole which is very, I think it takes like a gallon of water to create an almond. I mean, we love almonds and everything. Then we export the almonds. Did they bring bees the, in out of curiosity? Yeah, they bring bees in, but it's like, it's, it's like a humongous machine yeah. that, so like when we go there, there, it has a certain beauty to it. I mean, like it's something we, we just make things so much harder is what I noticed. So I have like a comparison. So I come, I lived in Santa Cruz for six years and in Santa Cruz, there are really big into regenerative farming and just um, making the elegant, like re- restoring the elegant system of farming back too. So there are like, so if you were to go into the, there, it's a lot smaller, obviously, so, right. So, so we're talking about size when you talk about monocrops and like then exporting crops and, all, and all, making these like essentially like a polluted mess out of our, our land because nature loves variety. And then you, and then in Santa Cruz, they have like these all around the UC Santa Cruz campus, they had like little farms that were beautiful. So that if you, the minute you walked on there, your body could sense that you were in a place that that was working like that where nature was working. There were cats taking care of rodents. There were worms. The soil was lush. There's apples and all kinds of fruit trees and compost piles and herbs and, you know, a few weeds here and there. Like that's a big thing, like in, in like these huge orchards, like just, just massive spraying and stuff to kind of keep control of the land. And then it is a dust bowl, like the topsoil is gone. You just see, it's like, it's not beautiful anymore. The trees are beautiful, but they're so engineered, artificially engineered to just create mass quantity and then to taste the difference. Like I I realized that like, there's so much, there's so much argument around, you know, argument for um, big ag and all that. And my, I come from, my family are big ag. In, in big agricultural insurance and these almond trees. 
which have their own benefits and whatever it is they're feeding people or whatever, whatever the arguments are for. But you can sense, just like in our own bodies, that when you subtract everything, when you subtract the complexity and let the body or the land do its own thing, everything returns to like something that's actually beautiful and that you actually want to be a part of. Like I, I couldn't stop going to those little farms because and the children children are there taking tours and making apple cider and picking apples and learning and butterflies and flowers and bees there's no doubt I, I i can't i challenge anybody to go to the two different places and not sense something in their own body that it feels intuitively right so i just wanted to illustrate an example of that yeah that's a great example thanks for sharing it and it sounds like one of them is like life and the other one is designed to look like life but it's not life no right? it's like a the, fragile artificial engineered uniform looking form of life which is completely different than what nature creates and um, nikki pop the, the my family who i i love and care for that to make to take the illustration a step further are actually living this like in this allopathic kind of symptom management lifestyle Whereas like all of the people who are working together to create these small farms where there's like robust soil. And I mean, robust, it's like you smell that soil and the worms are just flowing and life is just abundant, a variety, a huge variety of life. The people that are running those, like they have a different type of relationship to their own embodied health. Mm. And so you have like these two different, I mean, it's like, it's stark, but so that the people who, you know, you have two choices as a human. You can you can experiment with both and then see how you feel. But I, I watch my family who are like symptom, you know, I, I've talked to my, my father-in-law before who's had so many surgeries and just has to deal with so much pain. It's hard to watch and on so many pain medicines and the cabinets are filled with stuff. I don't even know what's in there. And then this other type of like, really, it's hard to argue that there is, um, that there isn't like, a lot of value and truth in this other, this other um, sort of holistic regenerative approach to health and its full life cycle sustaining. Yeah. I mean, it's very stressful and capital intensive to fight nature. Yes. Um, it's, it's very easy um, exactly. to align with nature because nature does a whole lot of work. She can either yes. work for you or against you. And totally. if you're taking the allopathic route, uh, in health or in agriculture, nature will work against you. It will be very stressful. It will be very capital intensive. Either money or capital with human is like your life energy. It's yeah. very expensive energetically to fight how your body wants and needs to function. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk about body literacy because I think this is a very important element. And if literacy is defined as the ability to read and write in terms of like writing literacy and reading literacy, body literacy is the ability to inter interpret signals from your body basically i think is the most the easiest way to explain it and to read you know, signals from your body to read yeah to read and make sense of signals from your body and i think we disconnect with that quite a bit um throughout culture as it exists right now and if we reconnect with the sense of body literacy we get way more data and much richer data from our experiments and you know in terms of body literacy let's talk about some examples of physical and mental signals. So physical signals, you have pain, you have sensations, um, you have specific things like, you know, low energy or 
constipation or soreness mm -hmm. or fatigue. So those are like some physical signals that we need to pay attention to and we need to tune into because those are important uh, indicators that we can use as, as raw data. And then mental signals can be things like brain fog or anxiety, depression. Um, you know, I think sadness and fear and the, 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 the emotions that we get as humans, I think are also mental signs that mm -hmm. we should be literate in so that we don't have to fear them so that we can understand them. And I really think that body literacy is about curious, like expanding body literacy is about curiously seeking signals through experimentation. Uh, and then from a sci from the, the perspective of being a scientist with interpreting these and making meaning out of these signals, out of this, these signals that we're getting from our body is like logging them, writing them down, quantifying them, qualifying them. Like in terms of, you know, people say, oh, I have some pain. It's like, okay, pain's very general. Where is the pain? How intense is the pain? Does the pain change throughout the day? Does the area of pain change? Is it sharp or dull? Um, is it worse at night? Worse with movement? What movements make it worse? What movements make it feel better? Like there's so many things we can do to qualify these signals. And I think the deeper we go in qualifying them, the more literate we become in actually understanding that these are relevant things that we can tune into. Um, and they turn into the raw data that gives us feedback as to whether or not we're healing or not, right? Not to be eliminated, even the uncomfortable ones, I say the, I think the uncomfortable ones are the most important ones, actually, because they're the ones that you're, the reason they're the, the, the gnarliest is because your brain deems them of most importance. Mm -hmm. And yet those are the first ones we block. And so we've eliminated yeah. the feedback mechanism to actually, you know, figure out how to move forward productively and heal. Um, you know, mental health, I think is a prime example of this, right? You feel anxious. Well, instead of you having to understand why you feel anxiety, which is just like a fear because of uncertainty, um, just take this thing and it'll numb your brain a little bit so that you don't feel anxious, but guess mm -hmm. what? You never actually figure out the source of the anxiety. So it never goes away. And so that's you know, like an allopathic approach would be like, take these drugs and it will block out the anxiety versus the regenerative or, or natural way is like, let's figure out why you're anxious. Cause you're clearly anxious about something. You're clearly fearing some sort of uncertainty, which is causing you stress. Let's dive into that. It's uncomfortable to do that. It's easy to just take something quick, but it's, it's, it doesn't actually work long-term to take the quick fix, right? You, it comes at long-term expense. Um, yeah. I just was going to, I was just going to um, tell you that I recently heard a talk from Eileen McCusick and she suggested that even taking Advil or, or, um, or like just ibuprofen or whatever we use for like to dull some of the pain actually dulls um, emotional pain as well. You froze you froze for one second. He's taking Advil and ibuprofen, even if we take for like, and then you, and then you're. And then you're <laughs> um, that, that dulls, that, that actually dulls emotional um, sensations as well. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, allopathic opposite of symptom, AKA block symptom, AKA block signal. No bueno. No bueno. Um, so we have body literacy, the ability to, to interpret signals from your body. And then I think the other part is like, okay, in order to gain body literacy, you actually have to pay attention to the signals. And I, I love this term paying attention. I, I, I start to think about this much more lately. Like we say paying, pay attention all the time, right? Especially when we're kids, pay attention. And, you know, it, it's funny because we're paying with our attention and our attention is actually one of the most precious things that we give away freely without thinking of it. Right. 
Like if we let someone push our body around, we're, we're not very likely to just let someone come up to us and push us around. But, or like take, um, take something from us, like steal something from us. But we allow people to steal our attention all the time. And our attention is so precious. It's so important, right? It's like what forms our reality. And, you know, it's like our, our life energy is our ability to pay attention to it, to be attentive and focus on something. So I think, you know, reclaiming a sense of body literacy and being able to interpret these signals also involves us expanding our self-awareness um, and paying attention to the signals more on a deeper level, right? And I think here's an area where, where technology can be a double-edged sword, right? Like, mm-hmm. say you're like, I don't even know how to determine if I'm sleeping well or not. Well, I'm just going to buy this thing. I'm going to put it on my finger and it's going to tell me if I'm sleeping well. Okay, great. If that allows you to improve a little bit of awareness and gives you some sort of feedback mechanism while you're tuning back into your natural feedback ne- back mechanisms, great. But if you use that as a way to never have to tune into your own sensations, to, to never be literate with your body and just let this thing tell you whether you're sleeping well or not, um, that's a slippery slope. So I think we just need to be careful with technology. It's fine for it to help us reclaim a little bit of awareness, but at a certain point, we should take the awareness we've gained and build on that instead of allowing technology to tell us whether we're feeling good or not, or whether we've slept good or not. I can't Mm -hmm. tell you how many people uh, that were like, Oh, I feel great today. Oh, my thing says I slept not well. I don't feel like good anymore. It's like, I, I told you, I think I told you about the story about when I was playing in that tennis match and the woman was like wearing a heart rate monitor and she would like stop and she would make all, she would do all these crazy things like stop. And then it was, I was freaking out and I asked her what was going on. And she said, well, I have to let my heart rate come down. And she kept looking at her watch and she was looking, she was letting the watch dictate whether she wasn't even tuned into like what her body was feeling. So her heart rate would go up to a past a certain point and she would make some adjustment. And then she would be constantly checking about her heart rate. And I was thinking about how out of touch one is with their body. If they can't feel their heart rate, you know, um, going up and down and when to stop and rest and all those things, we just export it to our technology and that being a double edged sword. And I do the same thing with um, guided meditation, actually. I love a good guided meditation, but I just outsource my, I let, it's great, great training wheels, right? Just like antidepressants are designed to be temporary. They're great training wheels to have a guided meditation. But then at some point when I sit with the silence, it's almost unbearable because I've outsourced my, my solitude to the person guiding the meditation. Right. Yeah. So beware, (laughs) beware of technology never outsource your body literacy to technology, but you can use it to enhance. You should use technology to enhance body literacy, not to replace it. I think that's a good way of framing it. Um, So not only uh, interpreting signals, but like improving our ability to recognize signals, um, improving our ability to detect signals at a lower threshold. This is another important thing. I think with body literacy is like the analogy I used to give patients is that pain always starts as a whisper and it goes up to like, a stern voice, and then it starts to scream. And when you wait until things are, are, are screaming because you chose not to acknowledge it when it was whispering, it's often a lot more uncomfortable. And so decreasing our detection threshold, we're like really gaining a finely tuned sense of our sensations, right? If, where if you can detect a very low level of discomfort or pain, um, because you're, you're keenly aware of how everything feels when you're feeling good. So you can detect that, like, 
As soon as something's out of line, you can detect it early. You can resolve it early. You can do experiments early without getting to the point of massive pain or without having to stop doing what you love to do. And so, you know, recognizing and interpreting signals, reducing our detection thresholds, we detect things earlier. Um, and then the other layer is like starting to match the signals you get with the behaviors you're doing to determine, okay, well, okay, I'm getting this signal, I'm getting this pain. What behavior could I be doing to cause this pain, right? So it goes from expand literacy, feel more things, feel things on a deeper level of detail, begin to match the things you're feeling with the behaviors you're doing to detect patterns um, and really keenly observing these signals as feedback mechanisms that guide action, right? And, and really understanding the signals is, is, the, is what the goal is, right? It's not just to like feel the signals and um, you know, get an awareness of what those signals are, but actually understanding where are the signals coming from? What is the, what is the lesson the signals teaching me? Because that's what all these signals are, right? The body is, the body is speaking to us all the time. We often have gotten used to basically having earplugs in so that we never hear it. And so we only hear it when it's yelling as loud as it possibly can. And I think the whole notion of body literacy is like, we can take the earplugs out, but it costs us our attention. You have to feel a deep enough sense of purpose of rebuilding and restoring body literacy to actually devote attention to doing that. And, but once you do, it's very rewarding because you have this deeper like level of understanding your body that gives huge amounts of comfort and allows you to troubleshoot problems very quickly and very early. So they never get to the crazy catastrophic phase. Yeah. What are your thoughts on any thoughts on um, the whole notion of paying attention to your, to your signals? Because I think that to me, that's like, you know, boredom is just not paying attention, right? If you're actually paying attention yeah. and you're completely alone, you can pay attention to the sensation of your ribs moving when you breathe to the air going yeah. into your nose. Like there's so many layers of detail of granularity that you can tune into and it's freaking awesome, but you have to find enough meaning to actually devote attention to it. Yeah, that's right. And then I guess the only thing I would say about that is as as you start to delve in to these experiments, it can be a bit overwhelming, I would say, you know, that like you just feel like you're you really are go the opposite end of the spectrum, you know, so like as you get more experience and you you get more tuned in and you, um, you know, because then you're paying attention to every little every little thing so I've been at the boredom end of the level and then like at that very opposite extreme where you're like wait a second what is that right. <laughs> you know? yeah you can be hypersensitive to them yeah and that's so, not good either but but I think you have to kind of swing the pen this pendulum swings when you're experimenting and you're just embarking on a, a, a different journey mm-hmm. um so just us remembering that the pendulum swings and it will naturally go to a, a, a balanced um state you know at at some point you'll just kind of get the hang of like what are the signals that are like little tweaks that you need to pay attention to and it happens really fast it all happens really fast um once you get the hang of it and i think by paying attention and by building like a continuum of like least relevant information most relevant information Mm -hmm. if you only have a couple pieces of information you don't have a continuum you just have these isolated things and when they come up it could either be terrible or it could be nothing and we have a bias to thinking it's terrible until proven otherwise right And so the person with knee pain that is so bad, they can't walk now. It's really alarming. Um, But when they realize that like, okay, this is where the pain is. This is what the pain is. We shouldn't block it out. We should use it as a signal. Um, It's going to be okay. I've seen other people with this pain and this mechanism is going to be okay. When people understand what the signal is, they don't have to fear it anymore because they understand it. Right. But if they don't understand it, 
they will fear it until proven otherwise, especially if it's disrupting their life. And so just really tuning in, I think is the key here. And by tuning in and taking notes, you start to rebuild essentially an alphabet so that you can then string to like, you're learning the alphabet of the body. So you can string together sentences when the body talks to you. Right. And I think that's the key. Nikki Pop, when we're talking about like, we, we've talked about having like a supernatural or hyper-stimulated life in our culture. And I think it, it begs the point too, to be made that we have, if you are a person who has like really numbed your body, your body signals with medications and such, that our bodies actually are not designed to feel awesomely numb all the time do you know what i mean like people take like three advil before they go play a game of basketball or whatever i guess my point is like one of the things that i'm experiencing just like i think i've told you i maybe taken three advil in 20 years that's it with the i mean i I drink a little (laughs) you know and I, i i use recreational drinking i guess um but not to numb the pain but i mean like i'm not always purely unaltered um but that but that like i sometimes i get like fussy because i'm like well, how come i'm not numb numb happy un, you know no pain all the time but the body it is designed to be uncomfortable so that you can have signals and you can make adjustments so i think it it just is important to say that we are designed to be uncomfortable it's life you know and then if you get to experience like joy that's what makes us hungry for life you know like just can we just talk for one second about like when somebody starts to fast and how uncomfortable people get. Mm. And like a Dr. Furman talks about like less than 1%, less than 0.01% of the population are ever really hypoglycemic. But like the minute that we don't eat for a period of time and we get a little bit shaky or we get a headache, we automatically assume that there's like something that we have to eat because we're hypoglycemic. But the fact is, is that you're just, having discomfort from your body, like processing and digesting food that probably, you know, like detoxifying essentially, you know? And so we are designed to be uncomfortable for periods of time. And then you become really hungry for like life. And that makes what, that's the idea of like having an awesome human experiences, periods of discomfort and periods of joy and comfort. Yes. And not fearing the discomfort because what we're supposed to find meaning in it, like the discomfort and the shitty things that the things that we deem shitty are like part of the full spectrum experience. You can't just have the good half. Mm -hmm. You have to have the whole thing to build enough meaning to tell what is good or bad. Um, and also it's just like, yeah, if we're so, we live in such an alien world that allows us to be comfortable all the time and it kills us over time, but it's very unobvious. Let's call it right. Like having intense back pain and sitting in the chair, people don't draw the line of this is causing that, right? It's just, I'm getting older. I have back pain or, I, you know, whatever. When I was 18, I did this thing and then my back's messed up. Like that was a common thing people tell me in clinic. I'm like, oh boy, we got to talk. Um, but I, I think that we just need to understand that it's the signals are never bad. They're all adaptive. They're all important. Some are more relevant than others. But until you tune into them all and get an idea of the patterns of the, of, of when things are relevant and important and when things are just like something to note and to guide a course correction, um, we don't really have an understanding of the landscape. So we're just blindly guessing about all these things. So we can't take care of ourselves because we can't make sense of things. And I think taking a keen eye and observing these sensations and building more literacy of these sensations that our body's giving us, 
and you know, when you talked about, you know, drugs and this whole notion that we live in a hyper stimulated environment, our detection threshold is freaking high, right? Like something has to be super intense for it to get our attention. But the reality is, is like, if we take away all the distractions, um, you tune into a much lower sensation threshold and you actually feel way more, right? Like feeling discomfort when you're alone with yourself, with no external distractions is the signal that literally your brain is, is like so used to being flooded with stimuli that it's recalibrating. And that discomfort is your reminder that you're hyperstimulated all the time. You need to chill. But if you take that discomfort as like, I need to grab my phone and go on Twitter, then it's a misinterpretation of the signal. And it's probably going to come back next time. And I think it's good for all of us to be able to sit for 10 minutes with ourselves and not be insanely uncomfortable. Um, so yeah, let's, um, let's talk about some experiments from the perspective of regenerative health and body literacy. So, um, and this is, seems to be a common thread, but I think it's good is like explain the concept of regenerative health to someone else in 30 seconds. So this can be your learning partner. This could be someone in your pod, or it can be your partner at home or a friend. Because if you can explain regenerative health really crisply so that they kind of get it at a macro level in 30 seconds, you understand it. Um, log some body signals that you want to tune into. You know, like what are some signals that you may have been disconnecting from that you want to tune into? Log those in your health log and sort of review those over time um, and, and create some sort of prompt to remind you to tune into those. Um, write down all the allopathic medicines that you use regularly with no judgment on it. Like it's not that these things are good or bad, or I need to get rid of them or whatever. It's like, these are all the allopathic external things I'm taking to resolve a problem. And maybe your eventual goal is to undertake a more regenerative approach and not need as many external things for symptoms, but it starts with an awareness of just writing everything down that you take. Um, have a discussion with your pod about regenerative versus allopathic approaches, right? I think, um, we're already seeing some of the applications come in and some people are health professionals and, and we literally work in the world of allopathy. Like I, as a physical therapist, I worked in allopathic health or allopathic care. I wouldn't call it health. Um, and then as a the last one, this, you know, and this has to be someone who you have, who has a, a shared interest in understanding this, but discuss the notion of body literacy with someone, with your partner, with your learning partner, with your, the partner you live with or with other people in your pod. I think just discussing body literacy, maybe giving personal anecdotes of things that you're tuning into now that you may not have before or ways that you're using or implementing to uh, reclaim and restore your ability to be more body literate. Um, I think that's a good, that's a good uh, touch point for discussions to, to come out of, because I think as we hear people, as we hear stories from other people reclaiming, reclaiming body literacy in different ways than we are, it gives us um, and expanded templates of different ways we can reclaim body literacy. Um, and just, just writing things down and attaching language to sensation is actually a really powerful learning tool. So, um, you know, even if every time you get a, you get a, a signal that maybe you're, you're not used to just write it down, highlight it as like a, um, just a random signal in your health log. And then at the end, when you're doing synthesis, maybe you go and check out everything you highlighted in green was a new sensation. You can kind of observe, wow, like I'm sensing way more things in more detail, um, and write as much detail about it as you can, right? If you get a, like a, some sort of pain or some sort of anxiety, like lean into it and say like, how do I write as many words to qualify this thing I'm feeling right now so that I can look back and see how it's changing over time. Cause once again, our memories are not good at remembering high fidelity detail. If something's not really deemed really important by writing it down, you're essentially showing yourself that it's important enough to write down. Therefore 
you'll have a more vivid memory of it, but you also have externalized your memory by having a note that you can refer back to. Exactly. Very robust experiments. Very robust. Some of them are intense, but, and these are just They're, templates. You know, our they, hope is these that. Are, these are really worthwhile. This is worthwhile time spent. I will say from when I, I've tried to do this, that I, I naturally want to distract myself and do something else. It's yeah, worthwhile. And that's when you know, I mean, like Katie Bowman has in Move Your DNA, a list of like all the surgeries you've ever had or have to have all the medications. And mm. I have yet to actually complete the list. So it's, it, it, it does, it does create resistance, but it's worthwhile. Yeah. And you know, you don't have to do everything all at once. Do the easiest one first, right? Yeah. And when we list experiments, we're always going to list them from smallest and, and, and tiniest to most ambitious. So, you know, the first one there was explain the concept of regenerative health to someone in 30 seconds. Like that one doesn't, won't take you as long, but the deeper ones that require you to pay much more attention, um, some become intentionally so expensive, you don't deem them worth it. Right. But if something's important enough and it has enough meaning in it, then maybe it crosses the threshold of, yes, this is a good use of my attention. And, you know, you got an hour a day for 360 days. That's a lot of attention that you have banked up to spend however you deem fit. And so hopefully, you know, with each of these hours that pass by each day, you just um, allocate that attention as you see fit based on what you want to get out of this program. And everyone's going to want different things or get different things out of it, but it is what you make of it. And, uh, you know, lean on your, on your pod and on your learning partner and on the whole foot in our tribe to kind of help you out if you're, if you need some clarity. So Slack yep. is really good for that. Yep. That's it. So let's do it. Let's, let's wrap it up. Nikki pop. Let's wrap it up. That's all it. right. I'll our, do the outro for this one. Do it outro. Uh, we hope you found this lesson helpful uh, and we took do. some notes in your log. Uh, listening to this is proof of work. Thank you deeply for taking responsibility for your health. We hope you connect with your pod mates and talk about what you learned today and are continuing to share and build connections with other people, whether it's in your pod or even just in the footnote community at large. And uh, thanks for listening and ciao for now. Ciao for now, friends.